Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, it's Jesse. Just want to let you know in the interview you're going to hear, Sarah mistakenly identified a radio host who was fired for making racist tweets. She said it was Opie, but it was in fact Opie's former co-host, Anthony Cumio. Hi, hello, how's it going? Yeah, I know. But welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a comedian comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. Sometimes the jokes are small, like a baby, but, you know, like like a small baby. The joke will be a minute long, maybe two will be a one-liner or, or two-liner. I think for the Neil Brennan episode, it was like a short three-second throwaway line. Other times, the jokes are big babies. I know as a former big baby. Jen Kirkman, Bill Burr, Tignataro, they all had jokes well over 10 minutes. No one touches Gary Goldman, whose joke was an unbelievable 25 minutes, but this week's joke definitely tries. The joke writer in question, my guest today, is stand-up comedian, TV writer, and soon-to-be author, Sarah Schaefer. The subject is her 16-and-a-half-minute magnum opus about her first trip to Hobby Lobby, the infamous arson craft store who is best known for winning a Supreme Court case that allowed them to offer health insurance policies that excluded covering certain birth controls. Last week, our guest Daniel Sloss spoke about the Edinburgh Fringe Festival from the perspective of a UK comedian and how they're expected to bring a new show there every year. In this episode, Sarah talks about what the festival is like for comedians coming from America who try their hands at adapting their style to something that leans closer to the one-person show. To set the scene, Sarah started working on the joke in early 2017, before performing it as part of her Edinburgh show that summer. However, the version you'll hear is from her 2019 album, Live, Laugh, Love. Since there are a few versions of the joke floating around, we get the name of one of her fictional characters mixed up a few times, but don't worry, we figure it out. Eventually. Sarah and I spoke in February of this year. So, here is Sarah Schaefer. Enjoy! Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it oh, it seems like the the majority of the joke we're going to talk about was written between May and August two thousand seventeen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to start a little before then and the election of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote a piece for the Scotland Herald six months into his presidency that I that I loved that I felt was the first thing to really capture what I had been feeling as a consumer of comedy and I'd eventually write about myself. And the title was Why Trump Jokes Aren't Funny. Um, uh, I imagine Can I f- comment on that sure. really quickly? I did not choose that title. And sure, I was actually course. very angry about it because I hate when people say blank jokes yeah. aren't funny. Yeah. To say aren't anyway, funny implies that they can one, possibly yeah. be funny. Of course they can. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I imagine your feelings have evolved, but I want to sort of first start where you were at at that mm-hmm. moment. Um, can you talk about those first few months, what that felt like you and, um, as you describe audiences, buttholes. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, it really started in, during the election year yeah. when I was on the road a lot. And I was also on the road a lot in 2017. And I'd perform in a lot of different venues in uh, not just clubs, colleges, festivals, like just I, I was really doing it all. And I am not famous enough to have my own hardcore fan base that mm -hmm. would fill those spaces. So I'm all, and even to this day, I'm still mostly performing for a, a random collection of people. And some people come in there without knowing anything about me because they're idiots. And they're just like, time to go to a comedy right. show they don't, and you're you, a comedy yeah. show. You don't go, oh, I'm going to go see music tonight and not at least determine the genre yeah. and get mad when you're in there. And you're like, I didn't want to see death metal. <laughs> what is this? You know, I want my money back. Like, So I have people who come and um, don't know anything about me. Um, and so I would... During that time, I was contending with a lot of prickly reactions to just the most minor mentions mm -hmm. of things. Like I, it, I had a joke about that very topic about how you can't say anything on the internet without some blowhard coming by and getting mad about Hillary Clinton, and because I literally saw a picture of the Grand Canyon, like the most beautiful picture I'd ever seen of the Grand Canyon. A, a rainbow is going down into mm -hmm. the Grand Canyon. It was po posted by the Department of the Interior. Uh, so it's like the nerdiest people in the government are posting a really pretty picture of our one of our great treasures. Yeah. And the first comment, and it said like, storm approaching the Grand Canyon or whatever. And the very first comment underneath, I just happened to look, was like, you want to see a storm coming? Check out filthy Hillary Clinton. You know, it's just like not even the Grand Canyon can post a yeah, picture yeah. without someone getting pissed off. So uh, when I, I was telling that story for a while, and just the mention of her name, people couldn't even hear what I was mm -hmm. saying. And I remember one dude cupped his ears, closed his eyes, and started going mm, 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 like shaking his head, like a little fucking kid who yeah. was like you know, being confronted with like something naughty. And he was so childish. And I remember seeing that face. I'll never forget it. And just being like, oh, you can't even say anything. Like yeah. I, I haven't even made a comment about whether or not I like her or not. And this person is already reacting. And it just made it really hard to even get to the point when you're already feeling, I'm an extremely sensitive person. Like yeah. I really can tell in a room like tight buttholes <laughs> like I can it's and it's been a big challenge for me comedically speaking but um I guess describe to, to those <laughs> no who don't know what you mean by tight buttholes like you can just feel an energy in a room of wow some of these people hate me like there's a searing hatred or there's body language or just a tenseness in the room and sometimes it's just silence that's telling you that mm -hmm. you know that they're just not responding in any way and um, so I got really fr afraid of that feeling. I hate that feeling. My job as a comedian is to make people laugh and feel loose and joy. And I'm not someone who enjoys, I like building tension and breaking it, but this was not letting yeah. me do that. It was just an immediate knee jerk reaction or you just, you can't, you know, and Nikki Glazer in that, in that piece, I asked her a question. And she was like, I don't want to bring it up because I don't want to know who in the audience mm -hmm. likes Donald Trump <laughs> because then I can't stand that person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's from, personal, from a personal place of hating her audience. Yeah. So it's everyone. And, I, and since then, I've made jokes like, you know, you really 
you really could start a civil war in a comedy club right now. Just like say something really crazy and just fight and leave. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, the piece which I thought was really good, which is that it's not just the people that don't like him or don't want to hear the joke. It's that literally that like even if people agree with you, you're just like, I, yeah. I don't want this now. Well, yeah, because you're in a room with other people and now everyone knows based on who's laughing and who's upset, yeah. who's who. Yeah. And you don't want that. You don't want to be, I'm like, I wouldn't, in a comedy club, I wouldn't be like, oh my God, I'm sitting next to, like, people I can't stand and I think are actually, like, could potentially be racist, it, you know? <laughs> like, it, like, breaks the entire idea of a comedy club, which is like, you're going yeah. to laugh with other people. And be united and, and be as a, a uni- group. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it is very, it, it divides. Yeah. Um, one other question before we play the joke. What is your history with crafts? Oh, crafting. Uh, Well, I've been crafty my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, I love doing things with my hands. Um, I just love making things. I love measuring. (laughs) I love threads and patterns. I love following patterns. Um, It brings me great peace. How did you you start? um, Just as a child, as as a little girl, you are encouraged as a girl to pursue things with threads and cloth <laughs> and uh, making and painting and dollhouses and, you mm-hmm. know, like anything like that. But uh, as an adult, it really started um, just a need for a hobby and to have something to do while I'm watching TV. And um, I'm just, part of it was living in New York for a long time. I would crochet on the subway mm-hmm. to pass the time. Um, and now I enjoy cross-stitch. Uh, the most or any kind of tiny embroidery type stuff because I'm not very good at designing my own unless it's very simple. Mm. I'm not an artist in that way. I'm more of a craft person (laughs) who can follow other people's grand designs. (laughs) So let's listen to the the story of you and your journey to find a basket. (laughs) You know, for me... One of the things I struggle with the most is that um, I want so badly to be pure. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> I'm not talking sexually pure. No, 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 no. That ship has sailed. <laughs> okay. I mean, like, ideologically pure. You know, I like to think of myself as a good person. I, I volunteer. I donate. I vote. I use my legitimate outrage uh, against injustice in the world and I try to turn it into action. You know, I do that. But it never feels like it's enough. And I always worry that just one slip up will erase all the good I've done. That's the black and white world I feel like we live in right now and especially for me and my particular brand of anxiety that I'm working on in therapy. So when I, give, I want to give you an example of this in my life and how it plays out. Uh, I recently faced a real crisis of conscience while creating a craft nook in my home. <laughs> I'll explain. A craft nook, if you're not familiar, is when you become overwhelmed with a desire to create an area in your home, a nook, if you will, where you can display your crafting supplies in an organized and adorable manner. 
completely customizable. You can put little shelves and hooks, little baskets to store all your different supplies. I have all my, my embroidery floss on clothespins arranged by color on little clotheslines. How many of you are getting a little bit wet right now? I'm dripping. So while I was building Craft Nook, that's its name. First name Craft, last name Nook. While I was building Craft Nook, there was an empty area. There was a hole, a void. And I knew what went there. I needed like a little basket, like a thing to hold stuff in that I could hang there. Uh, something vintage looking, something rustic, like, like the kind of thing you'd collect eggs in on an old farm, obviously. <laughs> That's what went there. I had a vision. So I'm driving around Los Angeles to all the big stores. You know, in America, we've got it good. We have one store the size of a city block per type of item. Like, we've got BevMo. They only sell beverages. Dicks. They only sell dicks. Just kidding. <laughs> they sell sporting goods to dicks. For crafting, ooh, the, the list is long. We've got Joann's, we've got Michael's, Blick. The list goes on and on. But I'm driving around and I can't find this basket and I'm getting pissed. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Go home and order it on Amazon and get it delivered via drone in one hour? I want it now. <laughs> so frustrating. So I'm about to give up and head home. And then just then, like across the street, I see a store, a big store, a store I've never seen before, but I've heard of it because it's been in the news. It's called a Hobby Lobby. No, no, you don't know. You don't know what happened. So for those of you who don't, who didn't just groan, <laughs> those of you who don't know, Hobby Lobby was in the news because they went, it's a chain of retail stores, a, a corporation that went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States of America to prove that they hate women. Now that's just my interpretation of it. <laughs> their interpretation would be different. They would say they went to the Supreme Court to fight for what they believe to be their right to refuse to cover certain kinds of birth control for their female employees on religious grounds because they believe that those types of birth control are literally abortion. Now they're allowed to believe that. I'm allowed to disagree with that and think that what they did was dangerous and set a very dangerous precedent for, to open the door for all kinds of discrimination. That's just what I believe. So forget what you believe. We're not here to debate that stuff. But given what I've just told you, should I be shopping in a Hobby Lobby? No. Fuck Hobby Lobby. Resist and persist, bitch. Don't clap yet. <laughs> but there I am, standing in front of a Hobby Lobby. I'm already out of the car. I'm like, what's in there? I mean, I'm ready to fight, but I don't even know what it is that they sell. I should know my enemy, right? I should at least figure out what the hoblob's about. I should get in there. 
I'm not going to touch anything. I'm not going to buy anything. Maybe I'll fuck shit up a little. Maybe I'll hide some plan B in the merchandise for the employees to find. Everything is going to be cool. So I go in, and the the first thing I'm confronted with in the lobby of the Hobby Lobby, I'm not even in the store yet, is this display of all of these little like chest of drawers, like little dressers. They look like antique vintage like card catalogs. You know what I mean? They're like reclaimed barnwood and each drawer is a different color. I see it and I'm just like What is this place? Oh, it's cute. Engage your core. You will not be broken, Schaefer. Just do this. We can do this. I go in, and I was not ready. I don't know if you've been inside a Hobby Lobby. I was not ready. It is the most extravagant, insane, big craft store you've ever seen. It's bananas. They have everything. Cardstock, strings, glues, glitters, ornaments. Year-round. They had Halloween decorations out in May. They had a whole aisle of wicker baskets. Buy one, get ten free. Fuck. They had dollhouse furniture. Didn't see that coming. And all of it, all of it is just doused in the blood of Christ. It's just... Intense. I'm going through the store and I'm just kind of shaking and sweating because I truly am like, it's a wonderland for someone like me. I'm just like, this is incredible. It's like meeting your enemy and then like immediately falling in love with them. It's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. I'm going through the store kind of shaking like, this isn't fair. I get to the middle of the store and I come upon the biggest display I've ever seen of one type of item. It's like the size of this club. And what it was, was inspirational quotes. (laughs) And it wasn't just on driftwood, it was on everything. They had inspirational quotes on anything they could fit words on. Mailboxes, rocking horses, spinning wheels. Spinning wheels, that's hard to do, they did it. (laughs) And that's when I was grounded right back in my reality. I was like, nah, fuck you Hobby Lobby. I'm out. I made a beeline for the parking lot, but before I could get out of the store, it was like a ray of angel light shone down upon the basket that I needed for Craft Nook. The exact thing I had imagined was right there. And I was like, I look at the price tag and $2.99, damn it. Ah, It's such a good deal. I wrestled with my conscience for a good one to two seconds, picked it up, got in line, bought it, get in my car, start driving home. Halfway home, it hits me what I've done. I'm like, what the hell? You fake-ass feminist! You are such a hypocrite. You You didn't last a second. You live a life of privilege, and you just fucked it all up. You just let it all go. This is why Trump won. No, it's worse. I'm Trump. That's the thing. I think we don't like to admit it, but all of us have a little bit of Trump in our psyche. We get some of the stuff he does. We're like, I might do that if I was in that position. 
admit it. It's like, we can't help it. Like, Sigmund Freud, he came up with the parts of the personality, like ego, super ego, id. He forgot one, the Trump. The Trump is in the wind. The Trump is when you lose your convictions. You see candy and you just take it. You don't last two feet. You just, you're just in the wind. Whenever Trump does a press conference, I always imagine him behind a curtain, like before he comes out with his people. And they're like smacking him in the face and throwing water on him and being like, say it again. He's like, Nazis are bad. Say it again. Nazis are bad. One more time. Nazis are bad. Okay, go, 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 go. He gets up to the podium. He's like, some of the Nazis are very fine people. It's like, ah! He didn't last two feet. That's the Trump. I was the Trump in that moment. I didn't last two feet. Going with the plan, it just goes to shit. I got home, I put the basket in Craft Nook. It looked awesome. But I was feeling kind of guilty every time I looked at it. And no joke, that same week, Hobby Lobby popped up in the news again. This time, because they got in trouble. They got caught buying stuff illegally off the black market. Smuggling. What were they buying? Ancient tablets from Iraq. Old pieces of rock. I know. I was just as confused as you are at this point. I'm like, why does Hobby Lobby need the, these old things from Iraq? Like, are they going to put inspirational quotes on them and sell them? Like, that seems like a bad over-under. Okay. And then I kept reading, and they're like, no. Hobby Lobby has been trying to buy up all the old artifacts from the time of the Bible. This is true. So they could bring it back to America, where it belongs. Uh, as we know, Jesus is American. And they wanted to put all their old stuff that they could find into their Bible museum. This is real. Hobby Lobby, the people who own Hobby Lobby, opened a Bible museum in D.C. You can go to it right now. Now, this is the point where I started actually feeling empathy and sadness for Hobby Lobby. Because I was like, I mean, who amongst us? Like, seriously, think about it. If you were opening a museum, you would do anything you could to get at least one old thing in there. Why? You can't have a museum and not have one artifact in there. Otherwise, just start a, just build a website. Save us all time. The museum is so you can go be in the same room as something musty and old. That's why you go there. So they were like clearly desperate. Like I love imagining the president of Hobby Lobby like in a conference room, like pissed off, pounding his fist on the table. Like, I don't care how you get it, Cynthia, but we need something in the museum that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, personally touched. Now you go get it. I don't care how you get it. If you don't get it, you can find yourself a new job. Later that night, Cynthia's at her laptop shaking. Like, oh, Lord Jesus, got my hands on the interweb. Please help me find something that you touched for our museum. And now she's on the dark web somehow. Oh, where am I? Oh, help me. Help me, sir. Help me. And then someone helps her and she gets what she needs. That's... I honestly think that's literally how it happened. 
And then they got caught. They got in trouble for it. But I was reading this, and I was, I was like, well, this is interesting. Because I always kind of thought of Hobby Lobby, even if I disagree with them. I mean, they're hardcore, you know? They spent years and years of time and millions of dollars, I assume, in legal fees to go all the way to the Supreme Court to change the laws of our land around their beliefs. That's commitment. You got to admit they're walking their walk. They're living by their ideals. They are living the word of God as they see it. But last I checked, the Bible also says thou shalt not steal, bitch. So now I'm thinking I can keep that basket in Craft Nook and we're fine. <laughs> Somehow even there. But then things got even more, more complicated and trickier. And that a new detail about this story came out. Which was who they were doing business with on this black market. Now who do you think Hobby Lobby, a Christian... American, patriotic, family values, far-right company would like to be doing business with? Like, who do they want to be buying and selling things with? Like, who do they want to be, like, chumming up with? ISIS? Was that a guess? No? Well, that's who it was. And I know Cynthia didn't realize it was ISIS. I know she didn't know. But she, they were literally giving money to ISIS. That's I'm kind, and I'm like kind of laughing about it. I'm like, that is so crazy. But then I'm looking, I'm like staring at Kraft Nook and I'm like, I'm ISIS! <laughs> I thought, how am I going to make this work where everyone gets what they want? Okay, I'm going to keep the basket. It was $2.99. Just drop in the bucket. But to make things right, I'm going to put my birth control in the basket. That's where I keep it. And you know, Hobby Lobby, I get it. They wanted to make their museum perfect. I wanted my craft nook to be perfect. From now on, let's just agree to no longer do business with terrorists. Just going forward, let's not do that again. And we're back after listening to that joke. What a, oh, what a funny joke. What a journey. Um, <laughs> okay, so this was all leading to uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which I did in August 2017. And probably a year prior mm. is when I started making Craft Nook physically in my home. And so a year prior to Edinburgh? To Edinburgh. So this and then I decided I was going to do Edinburgh in like – January of 2017 and they make you like send in your name of the show mm. and a brief concept like right away <gasps> and I they were like don't worry if you don't have it figured out it's fine just you just yeah. have to ma- make it loosely like that's part of what Hannah Gatsby's Nanette the title Nanette is she had come up with the title before writing oh, the show. Oh that's why she says I thought there's gonna be a lot of material there. Yeah it, yeah so apparently at, at Edinburgh this is very common like people will submit their show mm. without having written it and some people were like writing it the day before, which I did not do, thank God. But um, and to a little explain, Edinburgh is a festival in Scotland yeah. that is a comedian goes and they do thirty straight days yeah. of shows, and they tend to be more one person showy. Yeah, but- an hour, uh, yeah. They encourage or well, look, you can do whatever you want. There's all kinds of shows. There's music. There's theater. There's drama. Plays. Mm-hmm. Total insanity. Yeah. 
um, literally like 10,000 shows a day. I'm not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. Like that's what you're up against. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I did sort of a hybrid stand-up and loosely themed show. And it was called Little White Box. And um, So in January you knew you were working? Yeah, I knew the loose themes. Mm -hmm. and Which um, were... Like, uh, it was like, Trump, Jesus, and America. Like, I had, like, two jokes, mm-hmm. you know, written that I built around, which is a great challenge for me because I'd never written around yeah. a theme or to a per- specific purpose like that before. Um, so I think, I don't remember, I think I was just, I think I was doing this podcast thing, experimenting with my own new podcast, and I was just blabbing about it, mm. Craft Nook, on my podcast and then I was like oh that could be a joke and I tried it out and just the craft nook part pre yes. hobby lobby yeah wow. oh it was just me talking about craft nook um and then is hobby that where lobby, the, 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 yeah. so the craft nook the name of it as a entity was that 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 part mm-hmm. of the joke was one of the first parts of the joke yes um and then hobby lobby came into it because I was putting it together and I was like I, it was the first time I'd been in a Hobby Lobby, and I was just completely horrified at how incredible it was. <laughs> and it, so it was probably January or February. So you're so you're in the Hobby Lobby. Yeah. Are you by the time you're step foot, you're like, this is going to be material immediately? Sort of. No, I didn't. I was in there feeling those feelings. Yeah. I was like, this isn't fair. I hate how cool this store is. <laughs> and cool is very yeah. <laughs> open to interpretation yes. there. Um. I was completely focused on the task at hand, which was decorating Craft Nook. I was not thinking about anything to do with jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's usually how I am with material up until this point with doing this Edinburgh show, which is just, it wouldn't occur to me until years later that something that had happened in my life could be a joke, mm-hmm. a story I've been telling friends. And, yeah. and then suddenly I'll be on stage one night and I'll go, Oh, I should tell that story and just see. Yeah. Um, but this time period I was specifically writing jokes, but I still was mining older experiences. So the Hobby Lobby thing kind of came in like, oh, oh, I could uh, talk about this and maybe tie it together with this theme of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the joke just became so long. And get, and now, I mean, it's even, I can't even do the joke anymore because it's too long. And it's so it keeps really on growing, can only you, work yeah. in certain settings. Um if I feel comfortable because it does touch on things that I think are for me a little edgy, um, meaning like abortion and, um, and, and I do, you know, reveal that I'm, uh, you know, first off, if you come see me perform and in the first 10 seconds, you don't know that I'm a liberal feminist, <laughs> you're not paying attention just by what I look like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and how I talk and stuff, but you never know. But, yeah. um, yeah, there's a lot going on in this joke and like, Stuff. Oh, and this, all the stuff with Hobby Lobby. Literally, I started talking about the experience of going in there and the feeling of like, oh my God, I'm not supposed to be shopping in this store politically. Like, I'm, I, it, I should be boycotting Hobby mm-hmm. Lobby, but I'm in here and I love it and I have to buy this thing because it's what I need. Um, and then I believe all that stuff where they got caught. Like yes. smuggling it, stuff. It, it, it happened then. Yeah. Like in 2017, right? Yeah, July 2017. Yes. So I was like down the path. Yeah. So it, I had to add this stuff in. Yeah. And it was just so, 
intense. And then, like, even after Edinburgh, like, new stuff has happened, which I didn't add on the album because it had literally just happened and I didn't have time yeah. to get it in. But, like, also some of the documents that, um, mm. like, old archival ancient documents that they had found in the Bible Museum were fake. And so I made this whole segment where Carol... Is it Carol or Cheryl? Cheryl is like dipping paper into tea. You know, when you were growing up and you yeah. made old documents and you dip it in tea and then you singe the edges with like a match. I would like do a whole act out of her doing that. I'm like, Lord, guide me to make these documents old looking. <laughs> and it, I mean, something about you talking about it, it is a very Romeo and Juliet-esque story. <laughs> a love story between you and this basket and then sort of. The the families. Yeah. So the joke has seven sections as mm. it's recorded. Um, I would oh, say. Oh wow, you you deconstructed my joke. I love well, it. It clearly has it has yeah. not only they seven sections, but they very neatly follow a hero's journey. Save the <laughs> 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 I love it. So I will go through it. So yes. um, the people that also people listening. Um, just so you don't know what Save the Cat is, because apparently it is not famous. There is this book called Save the Cat oh, yeah. that is like the intro to screenwriting book mm. of, of the last 20 years that very clearly lines out the beat of a classic sort of Hollywood movie. But the hero's journeys are sort of the classic story structure. And this follows one, which is uh, section one is purity, which is the setup. Then Craft Nook, which is the catalyst uh-huh. or call to action. Stores, the section where you talk about the stores, oh, that yeah. is the debate. The debate continues into the section about mm. the about Hobby Lobby section, which is also ends with the cross the threshold moment. <laughs> um, then inside the Hobby Lobby is uh, what the book calls fun and games or promise of the premise. Right. It is the second act of the story. Um, then all the Trump is all's lost, dark night of the soul. <laughs> um, and then the Hobby Lobby Museum is the finale. It, I'm, I'm sh- I can't imagine you thought of it this way but maybe did but how aware are you of when you're thinking about this especially with Edinburgh of like the structure this story I am not that aware I'm vaguely aware of it but I think my one of my best skills in writing and in uh, stand up is storytelling and I've fought against it for years because storytelling naturally also can lead to long Mm. and length and when you're coming up in comedy, there's a period where you're being pressured to do very short, bite-sized Because you sets. might have like five minutes. Five minutes for Montreal, five minutes for your audition, five minutes for late night set. And things happened in my career and people said things that made me think I had to abandon my storytelling, which is what I started out as mm-hmm. essentially. I would do structured stories with jokes and payoffs that would fill my entire 10 minutes or yeah. 8 minutes, however long I was getting at the time. I mean, time. even if you got 15 minutes now, this story is still too long for yes. 15 minutes. So this type of joke is my favorite, but uh, now finally I'm in a place in my career where I think I have the ability to just go back to my roots. But I've always been a natural storyteller, and when I first wrote my first television script, I was overwhelmed with the structure, and then when I was done with it, I realized I already knew mm-hmm. inherently because I consume so much of this stuff. I think some people think they know too, uh, and then they don't. But yeah. I actually do. <laughs> I think I actually do. It just feels. Well, I told right. you that you did. Yeah. So I think. Well, it's now I, I know you've confirmed it for <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> so you you mentioned Edinburgh. When you say you wrote to the assignment, what does that sort of mean in in practice? Are you like sitting down? Yes, and- I was. Um, 
I was transcribing um, my set so you'd into rec- record and then yeah, listen and I, to it back and typing it out. And I've done this process before, but not on such an intense level for so long. Um, like for an, my first album, I transcribed all my jokes and I tweaked them mm-hmm. typing wise and, you know, worked on it that way. But this was like extended for like a full six months of just like really intensely every night recording it, listening back, m- tweaking the script. I had like what uh, I had a script. Yeah, yeah. And so much of the writing came down to transition and making it feel like a cohesive show, which I, I barely accomplished. I feel like I barely accomplished that. After going to Edinburgh and seeing other people's shows and seeing what I could do, uh, I realized that stringing together a full hour of stand-up in a way that feels like its own show that really has a cohesive theme, um, I could have done more. And maybe if I had started, like, okay, I'm going to write a show about Jesus Mm -hmm. and just do that that would have been easier than what I had done, which was, I have three jokes I really like and I want to tell them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's so someone to, adjacent to each other. Yeah, and there's a lot in my Edinburgh show, there's stuff that's like a, my Christian upbringing. There's um, stuff about my mom dying. These are, and a lot of material I have now have put on hold that I can't wait to go back to, but I don't know what to do with it yet. So, had you been exposed to this? I mean, I think it's important context-wise, which is sort of like, in the UK and in Australia, this sort of form is the standard. Yes. Had you been exposed to those type of comedians before you went into it? I had done Melbourne yeah. um, for two weeks uh, the year prior, and that was my first exposure to those shows. But it really wasn't until Edinburgh that I saw this sort of... I saw Nanette there in person, um, and it was truly one of the best shows I've ever seen. And I will fight, physically fight, any comedian, I will meet you at the stand on Thursday night. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be out before, but <laughs> no, I'll be we're back. Gonna leak sa- this clip. I'll be yeah, leak it. Tag people um, that you know will be triggered by it. Yeah, you know, we know, we know who we're talking about. Yeah, we do. Uh, no, I, I I loved Jeanette. I thought it was an, an incredible piece of not only performance but also comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father. <laughs> watched Nanette and he is a 73 year old lifelong Republican white man Mm -hmm. southerner and he loved it he was like it was incredible so I'm just saying you know it's I think if you go into it with a preconceived notion and attitude then you might not like it but anyway Um, but that I saw that show I saw a lot of shows in Edinburgh and some were good and some weren't but I saw the, what what people were doing and um, I saw the whole range of you know quality and what made the better ones better and what made the weaker ones weaker and um, did it change how you approached even this story which is a longer piece um, it, it definitely let me tell that I would not have developed that joke the Hobby Lobby thing as much as I did if I hadn't done Edinburgh and it is one of my favorite jokes I've ever told. Cause I think I'm actually saying something for mm. real in it. And, and it's funny. And I, 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 and also I'm like, it could be funnier. I, I should, I should keep going back to it, but I don't know what it's on this album. And I don't know what to do with it now, but, and it's like, I can't even put it online. I, I could, I could put a video on YouTube and now I guess there's IGTV mm. that lets you go longer. I don't know. But uh, it seems like a lot of work to caption that. You know what I mean? (laughs) I don't have time for that shit. (laughs) 
We'll be right back with more Sarah Schaefer. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And we're back. Um, so I want to go section by section and talk about the the parts and sort of the thinking that went into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so section one, purity, uh, the oh, yeah. setup. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in interviews, you've talked about um, how you have a complicated relationship with rules and mm-hmm. being in, being good. Yeah. I feel like this section seems to be really a clear distillation of yeah. this. Can you talk about sort of that history, sort of how Trump did or did not disrupt that, and how to sort of then distill it into this idea of purity? Um, well, <laughs> wow, I've done a lot of thinking on this because I did just finish a memoir oh, <laughs> that gosh. comes out in August that has a lot of this in it. Not not a ton, but a little bit of it. Um, I, I had a traumatic incident in childhood um, involving my dad. Um, we're in, and I don't want to give it too much away because it's like a big part of my book. Sure. But um, <laughs> spoiler alert, <laughs> you're going to have to fucking buy the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I put so much work into it. <laughs> but I had things happen growing I was predisposition to be a rule follower, genetically speaking. I don't, you know, personality, they don't know 100% where it comes from, but this was already part of my personality baked in the moment I came out. Um, and then I, I had this traumatic incident involving my father where he made a huge mistake and he had to rebuild his whole life and we had to go with him. Mm -hmm. And it was really 
big and for a 12 year old me especially but for my whole family and after that just just to not be too can you say the general interest it, of people? it involved <laughs> finance great he made some big I just feel mistake like people yeah. will be like did her dad murder somebody? No, he did not murder anyone. Great. He he made a he made a mistake and he made a right. wrong, very wrong, morally wrong choice right. that he that he then corrected, which was the part that I think most people that's a very unique just from me talking to people, it's a unique experience mm-hmm. where someone comes forward and is like, I've made a before anyone he didn't get caught, he like stopped it. He was yeah. like, Hey, I've I've been doing this and I have to stop and and come what may, I can't live like this anymore. Yeah. And um, that hardened in me this idea that, one, you do something wrong, um, it will destroy everything. And uh, and then when you, do, when you do right, it corrects everything. Mm. And it was just very black and white to me as a 12-year-old. And then at the same time, I became radically in love with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Who's famous for doing things right. It's yeah. Good. And so all of that sort of settled in and then me also inherently wanting to be good. I, you know, got to say, Taylor Swift's new documentary, I did not expect to mm. feel what I felt watching that. I I have a complicated relationship with her and I really loved her for a while. And then the last two albums, musically, I just didn't like them as much. And then things, you know, there was all this stuff about her and I just started to kind of not as like her as much. But I watched this documentary and I could not have felt more empathy and related to her on because she talks in it about always wanting to be perceived mm. as good. Yeah. And I felt that it was interesting that she chose the words perceived as good because she knows she's not perfect and yeah. she's a flawed human being. But she doesn't want anyone to ever see those flawed parts. And I relate to that a lot. And I found myself crying for her. <laughs> and I, I'm back in love with Taylor <laughs> Swift now. I still want different music from her. Sure, of course. Um, it doesn't like hit me the way her older stuff does, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just like this. And then it um, had, and social media, to, to your question, social media, especially when Trump hit, is when all of this really blew up for me. Um, in that it was a recipe for disaster, in that I felt compelled to speak out a, a, on every single little thing that I felt mm. was morally my duty to speak up about and to fight the wrong and the bad. But what I realized, because at the same time I was also starting, in 2015 I started therapy, a new kind, like I did, started doing cognitive behavioral therapy to deal with all of these mm. issues with me, which had come to a real bad place in like 2015. I was very, very depressed, and it was all taking this stuff apart. So I'm already evolving and maturing at this point and really starting to deal with my black and white thinking, all or nothing, good or bad, you're evil or you're, you know, these mm-hmm. the, the, the thing I distilled much more <laughs> eloquently in the beginning of this joke. And so then I'm um, working on all this, and I see it happening on Twitter with everyone around me. And now we're all, I was like, oh, it was, I thought this was just my thing. And yeah. And now I'm seeing it happen to everyone and everyone's being sucked in and I'm still have this relationship with it and struggle and social media was punishing me in that we are having so many purity tests on and it's still happening. But like you're either you're either with us or you're against us. You know, if you do this, you aren't good anymore. And it was a lot for me like especially like i remember really feeling it very intensely after trump was elected around the women's march because there was so much 
criticism of the Women's March. And I had gone and I was suddenly deciding that I was bad for going because I was a white woman. Mm -hmm. I didn't wear a pussy hat. I know. But I was feeling really intensely. I felt I would read a tweet that criticized white women at the Women's March and I would take it as a criticism of me. And even though I knew some of it did apply to me and some of it didn't. I would just suddenly decide, okay, well, uh, that's bad, but what am I supposed to, you know, and I, I remained silent because I knew <laughs> it's not about my feelings, yeah. you know, in that situation, centering myself, those things. I'm always trying to follow these rules, yeah. but See, I realized it was just, just destroying me. I wouldn't be able to do anything during the day because I'd be thinking about this stuff all day long. How do you then make it so it's, you know, it's like a minute of this joke? How do you get like, okay, have all of this, as you explained, it's like the entirety of your thing and now it's mm-hmm. also happening to society mm-hmm. how do you get to like okay purity is sort of this idea purity mm-hmm. will be the the word i'll use yeah. black and white world i feel like we're in right now and especially for me and my particular brand of anxiety that i'm working th- through therapy yeah. and like that's the thing let me just yeah. say how do you is that you've talked about you go on say you talk about a while and like okay these sentences get to it yeah i mean there was a really messy version at first where i was trying because i realized i needed to set up the stakes and that's a huge part of storytelling mm-hmm. is to explain the stakes. And I really learned this with my book too, which is like, why are we, why is this important? Why do we care? Why are we here? And I had to make that clear to the audience. And so that's actually can be a problem for me as I over explain things, but mm. I felt with this story, it needed to be explained. Otherwise it would just be like, what are we talking about crafting yeah. for? <laughs> why are we getting into this? Um, and I think it, that really developed from doing it in Edinburgh. I needed a way to transition between what was before that joke into this. And yeah. it was the stuff that came before was about social media purity tests and trolling and and uh, how angry people get sense. online. And so I was transitioning into this, I think. <laughs> I might be misremembering the order. But yeah. But yeah. So that's I'm, distilling it down took actual like I had to sit there and write it. Mm-hmm. better because I would read when I would transcribe um, I would naturally start editing myself and I'd be like no write it down how you how you said it so you can see how fucking terrible it is you dumb bitch <laughs> you I have a great inner monologue <laughs> yeah, you're very mean to yourself <laughs> you're very harsh editor to yourself but what I think what it does and I want to as we talk into sort of section two craft nook catalyst the call to action um, the first sort of big laugh you get in in the joke sort of is the beginning it's 15 minutes <laughs> in <laughs> is the um, choice so you sort of build up the sort of idea of purity mm-hmm. which there's some laughs in it but it sort of really is set up and then it goes i recently faced a real crisis of conscience while creating a craft nook in my home and that sort mm-hmm. of was a laugh yeah and it what is nice and i think what the first part of the joke does is it it's um it's a sort of persona laugh it's not like mm-hmm. a joke mm-hmm. it's a like it's a oh you like mm-hmm. and i think um, it was the, you need that part to be like trying to get un, teach these people who a person who is a type of person who would care this much about the things you're about mm-hmm. to hear. Um, I know you've talked about, I've heard you talk about in different times in different interviews, struggling to be like, what is my persona? What is the sort of thing that people take away from me? Yeah. Do you feel? Do you see what I mean with this joke? That if mm-hmm. it is helpful to sort of yeah. like what it does to get the audience to be like, I know the type of person this is. Yeah, it's uh. This doing the Edinburgh show and every all my material since then has been way better, uh, a way better depiction of who I am. 
um, and not just me as a mirror or an ob- observer. Um, and, you know, I've told jokes. All my jokes have been personal in my, about my life or whatever, but they don't necessarily tell you who I am in an easy to understand way. They're just like, here's something that happened to me. Yeah. These jokes feel more like this is who I am, the core of my being, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and um, <clears throat> it feels like I'm moving into this like place where I am someone who is maybe an elderly woman deep down. And I like crafting and <laughs> gardening and miniatures and soothing and warmth and maternal but i'm not a mother you know that but that means my my maternal love is for everyone i don't reserve it for my own offspring you know i've been moving into this like this is sort of my core and and then um that i'm someone who's come past this moral anxiety i have it Mm -hmm. but i have learned how to deal with it and so i think this joke is uh hobby lobby is about confronting it um, and everything since has been, you know, being more comfortable with who I am and showing that. You, you've, you've said um, that sometimes when you, sometimes in your voice on stage, you'll see your mother, mm-hmm. um, and, and 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 maybe that's not necessarily the case anymore. You said this mm-hmm. in an interview while ago, but do you do you feel like that's maybe part I have of? No it? idea what you're talking about. Really? <laughs> no, <laughs> I was like, I was like, which is fine. No, kinda... I don't remember anything I've said. I, I mean, who uh, who literally? Yeah. It's like one interview you said <laughs> in like 2013. But yeah, yeah. Thank but you, you said you it was creep. <laughs> yeah, Jesse has been stalking me, and mm-hmm. I've never been more flattered and turned on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so considering you said that once, you feel like that holds tr- Is that what you think that is part of the maternal instinct you're feeling? I performed in at Acme Comedy Co. in Minneapolis, and some people came that I know, not well, but I know them, and they told me after. It was like the best feedback I've ever gotten. They were like, you have so much empathy for your audience. Mm. And I was just like, hmm, thank you for noticing. <laughs> Because I do. I'd want people to have a good time. Yeah. And I think right now there's so much arguing about what comedy should be, which is uh, you're already off the wrong yeah. foot if you're going what comedy should be because it's art and yeah. there's nothing that you're already lost if you're having that conversation. But there's a lot of people who are very strongly pushing the idea that comedy should anger people and offend, that it should do that. Yeah. That if you're not doing that, you're not telling the truth. <laughs> You're not saying what everyone's thinking. It's like, well, I don't think everyone's thinking yeah. those things. In fact, Maybe. I think a lot of people aren't, yeah. and that's why they're mad, okay? <laughs> but I think my comedy just isn't that, and so I've felt, in the past, I've felt so like down on, like, I'm not doing it right, and I'm not. it must mean I'm not funny. Mm-hmm. It is possible to be a loving person on stage and be funny. There are so many examples. Um. There's a part of this section where the the punchline is um, that you're a little bit wet, little bit wet right now because I'm <laughs> yeah. dripping, and I want to point out because I feel like your previous album was much more sexual. Yeah, it uh, was. And can you talk about sort of the the evolution away from that? Also, sort uh, of, and, well, I stopped having sex. Yeah, that's um, it's, but that's and, but how do you decide to then still use <laughs> it here and there? Uh, yeah, no, I think that I, t- I just write about what is going on and what I'm interested in. And, um, I, all, my first album was that material was largely written right after I got divorced and I was single for the first time as an adult. And it was just so much fun to talk about on stage. It was mm-hmm. a moment. It was a time of discovery for myself and exploration in every way. And 
it was so fun to talk about it on stage. And I was also like, I mean, I wasn't trying to be sexy on stage or anything because I think my material about it is not exactly alluring. Yeah. Um, and those who are allured by it, I, I'm suspicious of. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever. People can Have be turned on by me if they want to be. I'll take it. But um, <laughs> no, it, it was a very different album. And I think in some ways my my material moved into a what I hate the word clean because it, it's like I think my second album is actually much more edgy and more grown up more grown up and like and sophisticated and cuts harder i think on issues but um but i was moving into more clean material because i was doing so many colleges and and co- some colleges ask for not to curse. they say oh. pg13 i mean yeah. and i can still do like i one of my jokes that i now find very hacky um, <clears throat> is oh, your own jokes that you find <laughs> the joke where I, I do the rap lyric thing where it's like pumping pussy like yeah. gas, and it was like one of my first jokes. I it was the first joke I ever did on TV, yeah. and like people, it was such a crowd pleaser. And I would open all my college shows with that because it just made them comfortable yeah. with me. And it was a sexual joke, but it's not a it's not a dirty joke no. in a way. It's just a it's about a rap lyric. Yeah. I find it very hacky now, and I would I hope to never do it again. But, um. But I think um, college kids didn't want to hear about my divorce mm-hmm. and they didn't want to hear about um, like advanced sex stuff because most of the people I'd be performing for were virgins and they were just, it was uncomfortable yeah. and I, it was uncomfortable for me. It'd be like performing for a bunch of teenagers and being like, <laughs> do you know what squirting is? Like, God. Awful. It was a, It was like I was an aunt in the yeah. room being like, okay, kids, let's talk about your vulva. Everybody get out a mirror. You know, just too much for me. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to, you know, and just my material was naturally moving in this other direction anyway. But the Hoppy Lobby thing, I, could, I couldn't do at certain colleges because certain college kids, if I could tell I was at a college that was dumb. Yeah. Like for the dumber kids, I couldn't do this joke because they just wouldn't, they couldn't get it. Yeah. They were like crafting a hot abortion. What? You know, like, and not that they don't know what those things are, but like the, the message of the joke is more. You have to like pay attention for a while. Yeah. It, it, right. It also is a long story. And I would do it at like schools that I felt were smarter and they would love it. But <laughs> it w- I only did it a few times at colleges. It, it wouldn't work. So section three is the stores. Um, which feels very what's interesting about it it feels like it's almost like a joke that a person who's not from America would move to America yeah. and write yeah <laughs> because it's like about the stores so yeah. i had to write that yeah because i did the joke i did the show i did a tour leading up to edinburgh i wanted to be ready mm-hmm. for edinburgh i knew they you know i'd been advised don't show up thinking that you're going to work it out cuz you're performing every night which is a very american be like oh i'm t- doing it every night I'll, I'll figure it out when i get there and they're like no the reviewers come on night 1 you got to be ready <laughs> yeah. i was like oh my god so um i took it very seriously and i did it i booked a tour and um in nashville i had some friends come one of whom grew up in the uk and she was like so the concept of Hobby Lobby might be a bit of a problem for people in the UK because we they just don't have big box stores the way we do, and mm-hmm. like you need a you need an entry point that makes more sense and sets it up for them. And like yes, we have stores like big department stores and stuff, but it's just not like it is in America. So I wrote this for that. Yeah, and in it America, is a, you it, I wrote it in America 
to get ready for Edinburgh, and it worked great in the UK. Like, but it it works even better here because people get it even more. Yeah, and it uh, also has the Bevmo joke is like the jokiest joke of the joke. Yeah, the Bevmo joke, which is Bevmo, they only sell beverages, dicks. They only sell dicks. Just mm-hmm. kidding. They sell sporting goods too, dicks. Yeah. Nikki gave me the dicks line, and then I think I added the, the tag. The yeah, she goes. She said you should say dicks. They only sell dicks. Um, and then I added that. Just kidding. They sell sporting goods too. <laughs> dicks. That gets such a big laugh anytime I do that. It's it's truly a joke. It's like yeah, it's jo- a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the Amazon part. What? Why include the Amazon part? What do you think that? We say you oh, could go to Amazon. just because in my, I'm a logic queen. Like I, I'm like I, I feel I get very caught up in logic, and it's why I usually don't like to give feedback on other com- comedians' jokes if they ask me because I'm like, you will be caught in a tangle of logic problems if you ask me what I think. I'll be like, well, technically, <laughs> that won't work because what you're saying is. Um, I brought in the Amazon thing because I was like in my head being like, why didn't I just yeah. go home and order this online? You know, and in this immediate, it's, it is it is a joke. There is a lot to be said. I mean, even though I don't consciously think about it, but it's a joke fundamentally about, also about capitalism yeah. and like how sad it makes us all feel of like, you know, and, and just how petulant we become in it. Just like, I want it now. Yeah. Like, where's my thing? I should have access to everything I want at all times, and it should be cheap. It's just such an American attitude, and it's <laughs> killing the entire yeah. earth. It's really sick. So we go into uh, section four, cross the threshold. You're mm. now talking about Hobby Lobby. We're still not in the story. <laughs> it's such a fucking long joke. It is great. I mean, it is. There's a lot to it. I yeah. made sure. I made sure there was a laugh every couple. I was like, I got. I can't just be talking. The, the the Hobby Lobby part's really interesting because I think you'd expect to be like, now it's time to rail against Hobby Lobby, but it's it's almost like you try as hard as possible to not make it seem like, to try to present it evenly as possible. Yeah. You're like, I might say this. Their interpretation would be different. Yeah. They would say they went to the Supreme Court to fight for what they believe in, their right to refuse coverage mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. Why do it that way? Why not just be like, time to rail against Hobby Lobby? Um because I, in a way, wanted to show what how insidious what they were doing was. They would say this, yeah. and I want to just plainly say what they're doing so that the more intelligent people in the audience will understand that what they were doing was really fucked up. Yeah. That they believe as a, that they are a corporate. And there was times when I would add that line and be like, as we know, corporations are people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that idea is dangerous. And, you know, that it, so... W- I probably could make that line even better if I worked on it more. But just part of it, also, I made it very specific so that no one could argue with me about it. I always have imaginary future arguments Mm -hmm. when I'm making anything. Um, I'm always imagining the critique before it happens. And I wanted to make sure that I was getting my – because I'm also obsessed with the abortion debate. Yeah. Like I – and I – I don't have the bravery yet to really get into it on stage because I do think it's just one of those topics it's very hard to talk about on stage. Um, and even if you're someone who doesn't give a shit, it's still hard. Yeah. And I'm someone who really gives a shit about like the audience feeling comfortable. And so, I, you know, I'm like... Yeah, it takes it, you, if it, it takes you 10 minutes to set up a Hobby Lobby. Yeah, so. I mean, this is the most I can do. So, yeah. But I'm obsessed with the arguing. So I... And I've spent a lot of time reading both sides and what they argue mm-hmm. and really tried to 
dissect it down to the littlest details. So that's why I added in like certain types of birth control because Hobby Lobby did not uh, did not actually try to ban all of it, mm-hmm. but it was certain types that they believe is abortion, but it's actually not. You know, and I that's why I always say it's like this is a matter of belief. Yeah. And that is why it's so dangerous because it's, you know, they're imposing their beliefs on their employees and potentially because the 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 arguments that they made to the Supreme Court have really, really bad consequences Mm. that can also affect like discrimination against people uh, of different, you know, gender, race, religion. I mean, it's it opened a gate and like that's how. The far right is trying to actually dismantle our freedoms, not necessarily with your big butthead Trump in the office, although that helps their case. It's with these court cases, which yeah. is why it's so, so urgent that we get him out so we don't have four more years of him stacking the courts, you know, and opening these floodgates back to like, you know, even more regressive than we were in the 50s, you know. The, the, um, the section then has this part where you you sort of have internal monologue of why you're justifying going in. Yeah. Do, is it meant to sound kind of like bullshit? Like you're trying to be somewhat of an un, unreliable narrator or not even you're the narrator being like this person. Yeah. You want to be like this. I, this is a justification. This is not. Real. So I didn't actually think that when I went in there. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, I'm going to go fuck shit up. I'm just going to go see. I mean, I really wanted to, my basket. I wanted to see if they had it. Um, <laughs> and I'd never been in. And I was like, I, and my boyfriend was with me, which I don't bring this part into yeah. it. And he was, he's been to Hobby Lobby many times. You know, he grew up in Spokane, Washington. He grew Washington. up in Hobby Lobby. He grew, I mean, he, he did almost. His, like, uh, his mother is an incredible quilter. His whole family is extremely mm. crafty and like art, artsy, um, but they're also like very rural or suburban. So they're there's this interesting. They're very interesting mm. to me in this way. But um, they're uh, so he's been to Hobby Lobby many times. He's like, you don't understand what Hobby Lobby is, Sarah. And I'm like, well, what? It's got to suck. And he's yeah. like, no, I think you know. So he's like, and <laughs> Did it was you literally including him in the joke, or you're like, it's much. No, more... it just was too much to yeah. add that him in. It didn't need it. But we literally were at this in Burbank. There's this long row of every store, like Michaels, mm. Target, Dicks. You know, it's it's like it's crazy. It's like uh, it's what America was. It's like the dream. You know, it's like big box after big box, and then across this big. Uh, like street this huge intersection is like hobby lobby by itself you know <laughs> and so he was like we gotta go yeah so we went in there and then and i saw it and um yeah as we, as so this is essentially the midpoint of the joke and we oh have not God. gone to the hobby lobby yet but um how are you how does the sort of pacing evolve are you like are you building out outs if sort of parts of it aren't working like Oh, yeah, I've abandoned ship before. So you just be yeah. like, you'll stop. Are there certain points where you're like, oh, and then I went to the Hobby Lobby and it sucked anyway, so. Yeah, I mean, there have been times where I will go, you know what? I'll literally just say this. I'll be like, you guys aren't into this. I'm just going to move on. You And I'll be like, you can't handle this. You're not sophisticated enough. And <laughs> I usually get a laugh. <laughs> but like, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I'm going to move on. You don't get it's to know okay. what happened. I'll talk about, I'll, you know, and I sometimes when I did colleges, I would be like, I would give them a choice. It'd be like, I have a joke that's like about this, or I have a joke about this. Which way do you want me to go? And they would yell out, and I would go in that direction. Sometimes they would go in the Hobby Lobby direction. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, Choose so, your own adventure. <laughs> so, section five 
you're at the Hobby yeah. Lobby. Uh, fun and games, promises. Oh, wait, I wanted to say one oh. thing about the past section. Sure. You said, did you go in? So this is what I actually do. I will bargain with myself morally. I'll mm-hmm. go, um, I'm about to do something bad. But I'll make up for it. I'll carbon offset. That's like how in my head. Sure. I'll morally offset it. I'll I'll make a donation. I'll make sure that I'm volunteer. You know, like yeah. and I'm I'm not not in the Hobby Lobby sense, but like in my life, if I feel like I'm doing something that isn't morally pure, and we're talking, I mean, the most minor shit. I mean, truly, like dumb level shit. Mm. It's not like oh, I will steal this, and now I'll you know whatever. Anyway. So, yeah. so um, what did you want to convey? You know, like essentially, this is the—it's almost the entire section is a bit of an act up. So, what did you want to convey to the about you in the Hobby Lobby to an audience? What do you, in so much as this is Sarah the character you're talking about? Yeah. What do you want them to think about this person? Um, just like what would I be like if I was in my candy store mm. that I was not supposed to be in? Um, and I want people wanted really wanted people to feel relate to that feeling of uh, how impossible it is to be morally perfect in this country and that we all face those little dilemmas every day if we're conscious. I mean, it doesn't even matter what side yeah. you're on. You know, it's like people will yell at you for like, you shouldn't go to Salvation Army. They're they're a cult. They hate gay people. You shouldn't donate there. You shouldn't go in there. You know, there's a, there's a problem with every corporation or organization. Almost everyone, yeah. and if you dig, you'll you'll be lost. You won't. You'll just won't be able to do anything with your life if you're trying to be pure, even you know along yeah. your lines. This 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 section has a sort of. I mean, it's not even a callback. It's a full further continuation of the section about ins- inspirational quotes. Um, mm. To those who don't know, you open mm. this set with a, a section about inspirational quotes. W- what is it about inspirational quotes? How did that emerge? How do you sort of mm. feel? Like it ties sort of these things together. Um, that was one of the jokes that I had already written was like, this yeah. is gold and I've got to have this in my show. So I had to make it fit somehow. Um, the callback fit perfectly because those quotes are everywhere in Hobby Lobby. Inspirational yeah. quotes on rustic pieces of driftwood in multiple fonts are just, it's just jam packed in that store. It started with actually Scott, my boyfriend's, um, family like one of his cousins her house is like just covered in it Mm -hmm. i mean we like counted one time it was like 58 (laughs) like signs and that's when i started working on the joke and that so that joke was probably one of the first ones of this um collection of jokes that i had started and um i think it fits in because it is also speaks to the platitudes that we all like you know that one of the reasons those things are so annoying, and I got l- into this later in the um, Edinburgh show, mm. which is that it was a, a story about my mom's funeral where the it's platitudes. It's like, you know, mm. she's with you. I saw a butterfly on my minivan this morning. Mm. And, you know, like, and it's, but it doesn't help and it doesn't make you feel good and it doesn't change anything. But it makes some people feel good when they see that. So I feel like I'm judging them. Um, um, but anyway, yeah. the, the, <laughs> For me, they're they're not um, they're not specific enough. I like specificity, and that and of course those signs were everywhere in Hobby Lobby. So you, you know? so you buy the basket against mm-hmm. your better adjustment, or yeah. you just buy it, and then yeah. so section six, Trump surprise, it's a yeah. Trump joke. Eleven yeah. minutes in, <laughs> um, but it's different. I mean, the joke is that 
you're Trump. This is why Trump won. No, it's worse. I'm Trump. Mm. What about that angle in? As a person who, yeah. you know, hypothetically, a person reads you say Trump jokes are bad. They go see you at Edinburgh yeah. and you have this big thing and then surprise. Yeah. Why, mm. if you're doing a Trump joke, why was it that, which is more Because reflective. one of my issues with Trump is that I feel sorry for him and I feel empathy for him and mm-hmm. I feel that, that I shouldn't. And I can't help it. And I actually have to limit the amount of times I will listen to him talk or see him because I have to have enough hatred against him in my heart to fight Mm -hmm. for what the good cause is, which is to get him out of office. I think he's horrible and he's evil. But I still feel empathy for him. And I like, for instance, that picture that just came out with his tan on his face. That's the type of thing that makes me start feeling sorry for him. And I relate. Sometimes he does things that I see myself in him because that's how I view everyone. Yeah. I, I'm just someone who goes, oh, you are. I'm like that. I could see how I'm I almost have too much empathy sometimes where it's like um, I'm no longer standing up for myself and I'm giving I'm letting someone like beat me down. Mm-hmm. That is actually a wrong, bad person. But I can't let them. I'm like, no, but he's good. He didn't mean to do that. And um so that part is really because I there's so many things Trump does. I mean, I sh- I could do a whole separate yeah. hour on things he does that I think I see myself doing and other people do. But that person shouldn't be president. That's why I'm not president. So that's yeah. like the the end thing that I always come back to. Um, but yeah, you I've heard you talk. I mean, I've heard you say in a recent interview that you've are trying to be less of a people pleaser to the audience. I mean, this mm-hmm. section is, you know, what is it like to sort of tell the audience why you're not a good person or what about you is not good. I mean, did mm. you have to sort of build up to that? Was it hard to do this part or is it just sort of hard to do no. general? It's easy for me to yeah. trash myself. Got it. Very easy for me to do that. Um, then, I mean, in the reverse, in the post Nanette, it, yeah. was it hard to trash yourself in a way that felt to have a certain amount of dignity? You no, know, because I felt what I was saying was universal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think whether people can admit it or not, they... We all have very childish, selfish parts of us. And some people are comfortable with those parts and some people aren't. Um, And it's hard to admit that, you know, he's that's truly like he is like a part of the psyche, like the id. He, He it's very id like. Yeah. But it's the Trump is very specific to him. But it's like like id, but shorter. Yeah. And but that's also part of why we should uh, look at that and use it to defeat him, mm-hmm. you know, and understand what works against him. I mean, Nancy Pelosi tearing up that speech was on his level and it hurt, you know, like he yeah. hates that shit, you know, and not that I need him to hurt. I just want him gone. Yeah. I don't, I, <laughs> the man is no way that guy has a great life. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, but maybe he does. He's uh, he's drugged up enough. Maybe he doesn't feel any of it. <laughs> so section sec, sec section seven, mm. uh, the finale. Um, you talk about Hobby Lobby and all the stuff that happens. And we talked a little bit about <laughs> this how is my just, favorite part of the joke. <laughs> um, it's it's also should be noted that it's like arguably a third of the joke, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. the epilogue. Um, what I think is really interesting is that you approach, especially Cheryl. You create this character, and you feel bad for her. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting you, you approach her with empathy and sort of sadness, yeah. which is why that comedic choice instead of sort of 
like everyone's favorite righteous indignation. Like mm-hmm. you could have been like, see, they're all hypocrites and blah blah yeah. blah. Why? Why? Because I truly believe that when all the f- just the racking of my brain and reading so many pro life Twitter, uh, like reasonable people who yeah. seem they're never Trumpers, but they're still so off from where I am. They're so far apart. I'd look for those that commonalities and ways to feel empathy for them. Um, and I think that it is important to do that to a point. I mean, like, you know, where there's a point where it's like, okay, now you're denying the humanity of everyone else. And I no longer can abide by that, you know, but the Cheryl character, I, I grew up Cynthia, 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 sorry. (laughs) We listened to it just (laughs) now for sure. Uh, Uh, We listened to the version where before you change the name. Sorry, (laughs) Cynthia. Yeah, Cynthia is (laughs) shit. Sorry, Cynthia is um someone I know. You know, it's like it's I grew up evangelical Christian, Southern Baptist, and I was around all this, and I understand where they're coming from. In fact, the museum thing to me makes a hundred percent sense to me. It's like, why would you have a museum without something yeah. actually old in there? What is the point? And so I was just so blown away. And that's the newest part of the joke. Cause yeah. it happened in July. And I was just like, this is crazy. Like they have this museum and it's open. You can go to it. Yeah. You know, I, I need to go to it so I can like really feel it all. Well, then know. the joke is now then I'm going to have to bring it back <laughs> yeah. and it's going to become like 30 minutes long. But, um, but yeah, the, I I look for those things because I know that when I started out in comedy, I mean, I wasn't um, a very religious person by the time I got to New York. You know, yeah. I was not going to church anymore. But there's so much of my upbringing that I value. My values go- come from that. And there's parts of Christianity that I think are beautiful and like love, you know, and just it's a, a code that I live by, whether it, I'm calling it that or not. Um but when I got to New York, I would see a lot of people trashing religion in a way that made me yeah. suspicious if they'd ever experienced any kind of spiritual connection or faith in something or been in a community where there's a magical thing happening, that uh, where there's love in a room where it's like, you you do. I've never spoken tongues, but like, you can get slayed in the spirit. I mean, yeah. like... It's not something you, when you grow up in it and you have those experiences, it's so intense. And, um, and it, so it'd be disingenuous to be cynical about certain parts of. Yeah, I'm parts. very cynical about a lot of religion, but I don't want that to, I want to come from a place of authority. Yeah. And I think so much authority comes from just simply understanding. Yeah, it's also much more complicated. Side. It's so easy to go, they're yeah. just stupid. Yeah. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, maybe, but like they have a reason for what they're doing that is very real to them. How do you end? So it's this big thing. How do you approach an ending of thing to be like, okay, we now have to land this plane that I took up as high as possible. <laughs> oh, God, I don't even remember how it ends. So it no, ends no, with, oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I have it written out. So I can, mm, no, what's the very last line? I'll remember it as soon as you mm-hmm, say it. Mm-hmm. You got this out. Right? Um, from now on. They wanted to make the museum perfect, and I wanted my craft nook to be perfect. From yeah. now on, let's just agree to no oh. longer do business with terrorists. Yeah. You know, it's like lesson learned. Yeah. You know, but um, 
is about a mutual respect of like walking away from one another, even though Hobby Lobby does not care about me in <laughs> yeah. any way, shape, or form. Um, but it's a degree it, to disagree. We're both. Well, what we're all can flawed. I yeah. do? Yeah. yeah, I mean, what I can do is not shop there. But I also know just me shopping there is not enough. Yeah. Huge boycotts work to an extent. They do work, but they have to be so big, which is part of why the Women's March, in my mind, is important, something yeah. like that. You have to – Moshe Kasher said this when because I worked at his show when the Women's March happened. He was like, you know, I was seeing all this stuff online about people criticizing it, and th- those critiques were valid, but also he said – if you want a movement to go mainstream and actually make a huge impact, you're going to have to invite some assholes to yeah. the party. You can't be purists. Anyway, so it goes back to the theme. Okay, so now on the other side of this joke, um, and as having seen comedy over the last few years, I think, though we can still maybe agree on sort of the, the idea that there's flaws in jo- jokes about Trump yeah. in the most purest sense, but ha- what have you learned about Comedy, at, you know, I think even in that article you said there were people like, oh, Trump winning is good for comedy, which I think is mm-hmm. a crazy thing to even to yeah. assert. But there there has been shifts in comedy as a result that I would mm-hmm. say I, I've seen like you'd say maybe comedy has improved or whatever that means. But for you, what have you seen? How have you dealt it with the situation that you laid out that you have found to be positive? What have you learned that is more effective? What has this joke taught you? I really am proud of this joke because I don't, I haven't seen anyone do these, do this. Yeah. Uh, th- to say these things about him or um, about this climate. I feel this is a unique joke. Um, and part of it is because it's built on a real life experience that I had. But I did other jokes in that Edinburgh show that I realized while I was there, they were hacky. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard through the curtain after someone going, all the American comedians are starting their show the same way. And I went, oh, fuck. So I changed that. Um, But since coming back, I have seen so many of the same jokes. And sometimes it's the joke is I can't talk about Trump because blah, 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 blah. Um, Well, why is this joke good? (laughs) Well, this joke is great. Yeah. No, this joke is great because I think it goes to more of a core of the climate right now as opposed to what uh, orange haired, orangey Cheeto hand in chief. You know what I mean? Like. It's not those easy jokes. It's just more about the core of who we are, uh, or at least who I am. And so that's why it's a more specific entry point into that. But, yeah. Um, I want to talk very briefly about the comedy Civil War. Um, you recently wrote I, a thing. I'm happy to talk about it on, I, on a podcast. I, I, I mean, I, so. Uh, I know what to say and what not sure, to say. Sure, <laughs> yeah. I, so to summarize, mm. um, I think it's an it's a overblown and sort of recklessly inflammatory name for what is yeah, a pretty niche thing, which yeah. is there's a certain subsect of comedians and comedy fans who are sort of united around um, their sort of point of view, defending free speech at all costs above other people's sort of mm-hmm. safety even. Mm-hmm. There are certain events that sort of triggered this, um, the Louis C.K. being booked yeah. in clubs. They would defend Louis C.K. and the right for him mm-hmm. to do it. Probably the biggest was then Shane Gillis being mm-hmm. cast on SNL, then fired when after it's revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things he said, and then you wrote a piece recently. And you talk about how you would often do these threats, yeah, where you would respond to them, yeah. Um, but you recently decided not to do that yeah. anymore. Can yeah. you talk about yeah. that piece you wrote and summarize sort of um, what you learned? So last summer I got into a dust up online with some um, comedy fans. I call them Shithead Island, and mm-hmm. it's Shithead Island is the fandoms of certain 
comedy podcasts. And this is not an indictment necessarily on the hosts themselves. Um, some of them are probably really nice people or normal. I, I don't know. But the fans are so crazy yeah. that I don't want to ever visit Shithead Island because, and I'm using a, a real, I will give you one real example. I did Opie and Anthony like twice, mm-hmm. years and years ago. We'll cut two years later, Opie gets all, you know, fucked up and fired because he does this racist tirade on Twitter. And when that happened, I mean, I hadn't said boo about it. I, I didn't even realize what was going on. And I hadn't tweeted about Opie. I was on the show for maybe five minutes total. Like years ago. And his fans were now tweeting me, you know, you better speak up for him or you're, you know, you're going to get it. Like, I mean, I I was being harassed and I hadn't even said anything about it. And I was like, who is this? And I realized, oh, these are also the type of people that have been for years being mean to me online. They follow me for some reason. And it was just like, oh, they're from there. They're from that area of fandom. And I don't, you know... Look, all, I have been harassed by these people, this group of people, and I'm putting a big group, yeah. you know, big label on it, in many different ways over the years. And some of it has been really bad, like where I have been afraid to go. It has changed the way I operate when I'm on the road. Because when you see a whole Reddit thread of people joking mm-hmm. about, raping you and killing you or wanting you to kill yourself and trying to figure out how to get me to kill myself. You can't help but wonder what if one of these psychos shows up and they're talking about, I'm going to go see her perform and they're, they know I'm reading it and they, they, they hope I see that and they want me to feel fear and they want me to feel awful. Um, and it worked. I'm, I was afraid after that. I was like, what if one of these fucking psychos shows up and does something to me? And that's why I always say women comedians are brave because we are publicly publishing where we're going to be all the time. (laughs) It's like all it takes is one psycho to show up and it's it's in the back of your head. It's kind of it's it's freaky. But for the most part, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Nobody is, you know, but you can't help but feel a little afraid. But anyway, so I got in this dust up with some of these shithead island people. Um, last summer, and it was a really bad time. It, it was bleeding over into my personal life and causing conflict in personal life. And I had, I like had two days sleepless nights, like anxiety, my anxiety just spiraling. I mean, like when I'm having a full blown anxiety attack, I am unable to sleep. I'm, I'm crying. It's a physical thing. That's it's like a panic attack, but mm. less. You know, um, my heart rate is. I mean, I'm like sweating. I'm. I'm crying. I'm, I'm talking out loud. I'm like, no, but I'm going to, you know, and it just triggered one. And I was so exhausted by it. And I was like, why am I doing this to Mm -hmm. myself? And in the end, I'm not gaining anything from being in these comedy debates online. But that was like the lead up to all of it. And what I realized is I wasn't really doing anything. I wasn't moving the needle. These are cyclical arguments the same points are made over and over again for a while it was the are women funny argument it was just like why are we even having this This is so stupid like the same sides will say the same things no one's mind has changed this is stupid and i got teased by a comedy friend of mine which is in the article like and it made me be like oh i can't do this anymore you know and you're getting people going uh, people i think started to assume 
that I'm a comedian that gets up on stage and does Nanette. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's just like, no, I actually don't even really get into this shit yeah, on stage. Your comedy's not about critiquing. No, comedy. and especially now my jokes are about something completely different. And yeah. it's just, I'm putting out a wrong impression of who I am. And um, I'm, you know, being trolled in a way that's hurting me and making me scared not scared physically, but like nervous to be in a club around some of the comedians that maybe I had a little mm-hmm. dust up with. And, and that I don't like that feeling that that's dumb. Like why this is just, I'm not even involved in it. And, yeah. but I care about who gets to do comedy and I care about women in comedy feeling safe. And so I do get passionate about those things, but I don't think Twitter's the place for it anymore. You, you, you talk about the, this idea of a coastal paradox, um, which is essentially measuring the coastline. If you zoom out, mm-hmm. it the more closely you measure it, yeah. the more detail it has, and actually yeah. the bigger it is. Yeah. Um, and you tie that into sort of how Twitter minimizes sort of our, our the personality of people to sort of bite sized ideas, mm-hmm. and they're sort of one side or the You're other. You're on this side. I'm on this yeah. side. And then yeah. um, I was thinking about how a few things, which is sort of there's this idea that. Um, A.O. Scott talks about how all filmmakers are film critics in their way, and they they use their films to sort of assert their value system of what is good or is bad or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I was thinking about those combines, and you've now, with some distance from it, and also thinking about this joke, which Mm -hmm. I think has same themes of that Mm -hmm. idea of a causal paradox, do you now think that, like, oh, the best way to sort of convey what I think comedy is what I hope for comedy is through my yeah. comedy itself. It's I realize the best way for me to deal with all these things is to create things. So like the essay I wrote, I love writing. And so if I get to write something like that, I feel much more satisfied yeah. than just firing off a tweet that is not nuanced in any way and starts putting me in a box and everyone else in another box. And um, and so, yeah, my my comedy, my book, you know, Anything where it feels like an actual creative expression, Twitter has never been a medium for me that works. Mm. And so why, you know, I still use it because I want to like promote myself on it. And we are still reliant on that a little. But um, it's just not what it is. I'm not making things on there that are valuable. Something I was thinking about with this joke is it's it's nearly 17 minutes long. And I was like, it like takes up space. It is sort of like this is a big thing mm-hmm. that like we're gonna stop yeah and we're gonna get into this. For it's a something bit. like ma- if an artist did a huge painting and made people reckon with that. Yeah, Instead, opposed to like a oh, little thing. Yeah, sweet. does that resonate to you? It's like do yeah. you feel like that's why it, part of it why it became so long? Yeah, I mean because I had more to say and um, the audience had to go there with me and I I actually like so grateful for British or you know for the UK audience Scottish I'm like UK British all of it because there was a lot of people there but I'm grateful for those audiences because they actually they don't laugh yeah um, which is extremely stressful but they're very engaged yeah and they want to learn from you and they allowed me to do this and breathe they're just sort of like we want to meet we just want to know who you are yeah they want to know who you are they want your pain uh, <laughs> and who you are is a valid yeah. way of spending time. Yeah, they they were like, and I would think I had bombed, and then I'd hear through the little curtain, I'd hear someone go, oh, it was the best show I've ever seen. <laughs> I feel like, or people would apologize, they go, I'm sorry, I was the one laughing. <laughs> I'm like, what? You are the only one that made me feel alive out there. Does, but that, they just, does it make you want to do longer jokes? 
Do you think? Yeah, you yeah. No, I, I right now I'm working on a joke about, um, and it's nine minutes already, mm-hmm. and it's about um, uh, meditation and sleep. Uh, this sleep cast that I've been listening to, and it's so funny. I like, and I honestly could do an hour because there's more. I yeah. have so much more to say. And, uh, you know, I'm like, that would be a really weird hour, but I could do it. I could try. <laughs> you should do it. Like, and part of it is you yeah. do meditation for like yeah. 20 of the minutes. To yeah, time. exactly. We all get on the same page and we become present with each other. I, I, that's not a bad idea. But yeah, but I'm also working on potentially doing up Edinburgh again yeah. with something from my book. And we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the uh-huh. laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because uh-huh. it's comedy, it's Got a it. laughing round. Okay. Um, <laughs> wow. Thanks. Good job. Um, do you have a favorite joke joke? Street joke? Um, it, my sister wrote it. That's okay. I'll tell you. Where does the worst band in the world live? Where? Three doors down. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> um, is there a joke? You- my friend wrote a tag. <laughs> Where does the best band in the world live? Where? Pearl Jam. <laughs> That is funny. Um, funny. John Friedman wrote the tag. Um, Is there a joke that you wish you could steal in so much as Mm. it's a different dimension? Everything's exactly the same, but this comedian's joke is now your joke and you get to tell it. In other words, a lot of comedians think of like a joke you heard and you're like, oh, I I wish I thought of that. Yeah, fuck. I can't think of anything right now. Okay. Passing Uh, is allowed. All all of Rory Scovel's work. (laughs) Pretending the <laughs> microphone wire is a snake or whatever. That's, I love him. Um, you used to write for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yeah. Are you allowed to say any questions you wrote? Okay, so my favorite question <laughs> I wrote, which I think they might have made a million-dollar question. I don't remember, but um, I wrote, I categorized it as one. Um, it was in the movie Ferris Bueller, what painting does Cameron become lost in in the I, I phrased it better but yeah. it, and it's the grand the, the just, yeah Sunday it's like you have to know thing. the movie and you have to know that the name of that painting it's a great question um you were an early blogger oh yeah or i was an early blogger which was very important to me as a mid tier <laughs> mid era blogger you wrote for bestweekever.tv, you did. which was very seminal to me. Do you yeah. remember uh, any headlines you wrote? Oh, I remember uh, being very proud of my, um, I made a video that disappeared and I watched every Kung Fu movie. I'm not kidding. Every Kung Fu movie because my um, husband at the time was really into Kung Fu and I noticed like whenever there was these scenes where they they would just make expressions like they were trying to push out poop mm-hmm. and I called it Kung Fu and it just made a montage of kung fu guys going <laughs> it's the dumbest thing i've ever made and no one liked it <laughs> but i did um you did a video where you begged justin timberlake to make yeah. music again that yeah. sort of ended his like i feel like it he, worked it worked he made music again but yeah. now i feel like he is not Known as a musician or an actor. Yeah, we do, ruined him. Do you think about that? Uh, I do. I've thought a lot about Justin Timberlake because I feel so... Uh, I'm upset with him right now. He's gone in a way that I'm not... I don't know. I have such complicated feelings about him. I didn't like what he did at the Super Bowl. I didn't like his last album. And I didn't like what he did to his wife hmm. recently. He was holding hands with the co-star on a balcony <laughs> in, in New Orleans. What in the world were you thinking, man? I don't care what was going on. 
you fool, you're famous. Don't yeah. do that shit. Don't humiliate your wife. <laughs> uh, last one. Do you, ha- do you have a joke that um, has never worked? Mm-hmm. Um, you've tried it a bunch of times. It never works. But you're like, that's funny. You'll go to the grave being like, I had this one funny joke. Oh, no one yeah. got it. Um, I do a joke, which I actually think is, I stopped doing it, one, because it wouldn't get laughs, but also because um, it feel, started to feel hacky already, which was, um, I'm not one of those feminists that wants to kill all men, but what if we just did one? <laughs> and then I go, and that usually gets a laugh, yeah. but then I'll go, I mean, calm down, we'll pick a bad one. And then I'd cover my eyes and I'd like, just point. And the the joke is that all men are bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it t- brings it all around to kill all men. But people don't either don't get what I'm doing or they're like, you are taking it too far, you shrill bitch. How dare you? So I kind of abandoned it. Because there's a lot of kill all men jokes yeah, yeah. right now amongst women comics and it's starting to feel old already but i do like that joke the end the end end. thank you that's it for another episode you can listen to sarah's live laugh love wherever you buy or stream music you can pre-order a copy of her memoir grand which comes out august 11th wherever books are sold follow sarah on social media at sarah schaefer one good one is produced by myself jelani carter art chung and camila salazar gotham shrikashin did our theme song editorial assistance from amanda gordon Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing round suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.